All right, I believe kids are dismissed to head back to sing. We're just singing. So if you are in the kids' choir, which is going to be performing next week, they're going to practice now so you guys can leave. If you're not in the kids' choir and you want to join, now is a good chance to do that. If you don't want to join, welcome. You're here, all right? So my name is Doug. I'm the pastor here at Parkview East, and it is a joy um, to be with you here this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them up. We're going to be looking at the book of Romans in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. If you did not bring your Bible with you, it's okay. We have you covered. There are Bibles in the back. If you want one, just raise your hand. Anybody want a Bible? Just raise your hand. They're coming around. The words will not be on the screen this morning. We encourage you, if you have a Bible, to bring it with you to church. Um, I don't put them on the screen for that reason, so we can learn how to navigate our word. Now, if you don't have them, physical one, you can use your phone, whatever is, is okay, but I really want you to be looking in God's word on Sunday morning. So I would encourage you, if you do not have a Bible at home, that Bible is our gift to you, all right? So you can take that with you as you go, and nobody's going to be looking at you side eye when you walk out the door, all right? <laughs> Romans chapter 1. Verses 1 through 7 is where we are this morning. Now, just pause real quick. As a church, we have been walking through the book of Mark. And so we have been learning about the life, the teachings, the miracles, the story really of Jesus through the gospel of Mark. For the Christmas season, we are going to pause that series. We'll pick it back up in January, mid-January. But for now, for the Christmas season, we have decided to kind of look in a different place in the New Testament to discover the Christmas story. And so we're looking in the epistles um, in the letters that were written, in the, that are captured in the New Testament, that were written to churches and to people to encourage them in the faith. And so um, this morning, we are going to be pulling out a portion of the Christmas story from the book of Romans, from the book of Romans. And so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, or I'm going to read, sorry, and then I will pray and we'll, we'll dive in. So Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me go ahead and pray for us this morning. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that just as we open it up and discover um, your truth, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be here and would work through just even me right now, Lord. And I pray that, that uh, this gift that we are going to talk about this morning, that you have given us this gift of grace, Lord, I pray that it would be a gift that would be received with open arms by even just the people in this room this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would be with us. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Um, a famous pastor, Charles Spurgeon, wrote a, a, a small book that turned into be a classic. It's called All of Grace. 
And this is a classic book. And at the beginning of this book, it's Charles Spurgeon unpacks the concept of biblical grace, the grace that we get, that we receive from God. At the beginning of this book, Charles Spurgeon tells a brief story. And the story goes something like this. He speaks about a pastor who back in the day um, was given an abundance. And this pastor decided he wanted to be a, be a blessing to a particular person in his congregation. And this person that he wanted to bless with this abundance was a poor widowed woman. And so one day, this pastor makes his way up to this woman's house and he knocks on the door, gift in hand. I'm talking money, okay? He had money he was going to bless this poor widowed woman with. And so he knocks on the door, gift in hand, and he waits. And there's no response. The pastor knocks again a little harder this time and he waits and still no response. So maybe a little discouraged, the pastor walks away and carries on his business. Now, later that week, he finds himself at church and he encounters this woman. He meets her and he says, hey, hey, I stopped by your house earlier this week. I was going to bless you with this gift. I was there and he just wanted to let her let her know that he he thought about her in this way. And she says, oh, that was you. See, she was upstairs, and she explains to him that I heard you knock. It wasn't that I did not hear you. You, you. you knocked plenty loud enough. It was not that I had a problem hearing you. It's just that I thought that knock was coming from my landlord who was requiring me to pay my rent. All right, now maybe you can relate. I don't know if y'all know what I'm talking about here, but when you see that number maybe on your phone and you're like, ooh, let's just not answer that one today. Or maybe it's that piece of mail that you know if you open up, it's going to require something from you. Maybe you can relate. She did not answer the door because she thought that that knock was going to come with an extra demand or a duty, something that was going to require something from her. And so as a result, she neglected it. She did not answer the door. See, here is the idea. When we think about God's grace, the temptation can be even on a Sunday morning like this, where you would walk into church, that you would sit here, and you would think potentially that as God's word gets opened up, that it is going to demand something from you, a duty, a requirement that you are in debt to it. And so the temptation can be as we listen to God's word to not answer God's call because of what it requires from us. See, the awesome thing about the grace of God, which will be the central message of today's passage and my message today, is that when God offers us grace. Our simple job is to receive it. Isn't it a shame that that woman almost missed out on a blessing because all she could think about was what it would require, what that knock would demand from her. See, the great thing about grace, the grace that God extends to us, is that this grace doesn't make a demand from us. Rather, it is a gift to us. 
It's an awesome thing. Now, when I think about preparing a message on a Sunday morning, one of the primary questions I think about as I prepare that is how can this text be communicated to God's people in a way that would cause them to walk in obedience, to take steps that week even, that day even, in walking in obedience so that your life would begin to look more and more and more like the life of Jesus. That's one of the main things I think of when I prepare a message is how does this passage challenge us to be faithful to Jesus? And as I was considering this message this morning, this question was a question that I had in mind. How can this passage, this concept of God's grace that he extend us, how can it challenge us to walk in obedience? We'll see some that towards the end of the message where it does and most certainly just the concept of receiving the grace of God that God is a gracious giver who gives grace freely to his people should have radical implications for how we live every minute of our life that is true absolutely true but the primary challenge that I think this text has for us this morning really is twofold first is as we consider the awesome grace of God is to ask ourselves, have we received it? Have we received it? All that woman had to do in that story is walk downstairs and open the door, and she would have been blessed. She would have received grace of God. So, so that's one part of the challenge is have you received it? And the second side is maybe you have already received God's grace. And my hope and my prayer is that as a follower of Jesus, every day is growing in an understanding of the grace that we have received. To grow in our understanding of how precious, how amazing this grace is. Receive it and to grow in it. Quick story. So I don't know if you guys have ever... Uh, if you guys have an iPhone, okay? Anybody here an iPhone fan? Anybody got an iPhone? Awesome. I can think of, I mean, there's been lots of things that have changed my life, you know, marriage, children, important, fun things, okay? But when I think about the iPhone, like when I think about how it has radically, like my life 10 years ago, and I'm not trying to say it's like better than my wife or my family, that's not what I'm saying, okay? Don't hear that. That's from the devil, all right? But when I think about like just the way I spend my time, it is completely reoriented and restructured my time. And like every week I am learning new ways that this iPhone can be used, right? I'm just like scratching the surface of what I can do with this amazing piece of technology. When I first received the iPhone and got it, I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is amazing. But literally, like, every day with this phone has been me discovering how awesome it is, right? And God's grace is much like that. When we receive it, it should blow us away. It should be that awesome and amazing. And the life of a Christian should be every day growing in an understanding of how precious, how undeserving we are of his grace. Every day should be growing in grace. Okay? So what we're going to do this morning is three basic things that this passage... Now, this is a beautiful, this is a rich passage. Even as I was contemplating this passage in the words that we just read, I was thinking to myself, this passage demands five hours. So this morning is going to be a little bit longer. I'm kidding. It won't be. But what I'm going to do is... I'm just going to kind of scratch the surface 
we're, we're going to kind of wait a little bit here. And there'll be a few times when we dive a little deeper. Um, but I'm not going to talk about everything I can. Okay. Thanks, Doug. Okay. So you have a little bit of homework you could take with you. Okay. So this morning, there's going to be three things that we see that I want to pull out from these few verses. We're going to talk about the gospel of grace. We're going to learn about the history of grace. And then we will talk about the life of grace. So first up is the gospel of grace. If you have spent much time here at Parkview East, the word gospel is a word that you will and should hear over and over and over again. It is a word that every single one of us should be familiar with, what the word gospel means. To say we are a Christian people is to say we are a gospel people. The gospel is essential for our salvation. It is what saves us, but it is also essential for everyday Christian living. It, it informs the way that we live. It informs the way we love. It informs the way we forgive. It informs the way we walk with Jesus. I am a gospel person. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a gospel person. Paul is writing this letter, these verses to the church at Rome, which is made up of both Jewish and Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. Romans is a rich letter, and historically it has been instrumental in the conversion of many great theologians and leaders in the church. Historically, this letter is considered by many to be the most complete summary of the gospel in the New Testament. It's a deep book. It's a beautiful book. So real quick, I want to take these two words, the gospel of grace, and I want to make sure we have an appropriate understanding of what the word gospel means and what the biblical concept of grace is. So first is gospel. What does it mean? This word euangelion, the Greek word, if you were to break that word into half, you essentially means good, and gelion essentially means Herald. It would be the word that we get the word angel from. So the idea is that it's good, an angel that heralds, that brings news. It's good news. That's the essential definition of the word. If we were to scan through the book of Romans, we would, and did a word survey of how many times Paul used certain words, what you could do is you could take the top three words that Paul used over and over and over again, and you could get a good definition or a good understanding of what the word gospel means. The word that he uses the most in the book of Romans, 153 times to be exact, is the word God. The word God. And the biblical understanding of God is that there's one God. He is perfect. He is just. We learn that this good news in Romans chapter 1 is the gospel of God. He uses it 153 times over and over and over again in the book of Romans. God is perfect. God is just. God is amazing. He is completely good. He is completely great. The gospel begins with a good and great, awesome God. The word that he uses next the most, I think 70 four times throughout the book of Romans is the word law, the word law. This good, perfect, righteous judge of a God 
created us in his image. And he gave us a law, a requirement, a standard by which we should live. And the problem with this law is as we go back into history, as we go back into our hearts and examine our own hearts, what we soon discover is that the good, perfect law God established and gave to his people, we have broken. Paul tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So on one hand, you have this good, perfect God. On the other hand, you have a people whose relationship with God has been fractured by their inability to keep the law. This is a problem. This is a problem for us. And and the punishment for this breaking or this fracturing of the law the Bible says, Romans says, is death. The wages of sin, the punishment we pay for breaking the law is our own life. That's a problem. But luckily, Paul reveals in the book of Romans that where there is a problem, God made a way. And by looking at the word that he uses the third most in the book is the word Christ. 63 times he uses the word Christ. The way God fixed Our problem is he came to earth, sent his son to die for us. The only one who was perfect, who was totally righteous, who kept the law completely, paid his life on the cross so that we could be with God. In a brief way, that's how you could summarize the gospel. Christ, law, or sorry, God, law, Christ. Okay? So the next word that we need to come to an understanding of, this is a gospel of grace, is what does the biblical concept of grace look like? What does grace mean? Real quick, there's a quote, a good summary of the gospel. This is by a guy named Scott McKnight. He says this, The gospel is the work of God to restore humans to union with God and communion with others in the context of a community for the good of others and the world. It's not just, the gospel is not just what saves us and, and repairs our relationship to God. It also helps repair the relationships with each other, the relationships that have also been fractured by sin. So what is this grace? Well, we learn that this grace comes from God. Grace is not God's response according to what we have earned, okay? It is God's, it is the unmerited favor that we have received unmerited kindness that we have been given to God, not based on what we have done. It is grace that comes from God. The next thing we learn in these verses about grace is that this grace, this gift that God gives us, this unmerited favor is rooted in the Old Testament. This grace comes to us from God that we read about in the New Testament, but it's not God's plan B. It's not as if in the Old Testament God had set up a way for things to work. That way didn't quite work out, so God said, eh, audible, plan B. Jesus, let you go down there and fix this mess we created. That's not what happened. This was a part of the plan all the way from the beginning. The grace that we read about, it is the plan from the beginning of time. The Old Testament prophesies and promises that this grace would come. The presentation of the gospel of grace we see here in Romans is the fruition. It is the fulfillment of what God had already set forth in the Old Testament. Now, the next thing that we see in these verses about the nature of grace, and this is critical, and for me, this was the aha when I was studying this passage, is that this phrase, that this, this, this grace is centered on Jesus Christ. It is the grace that's concerning his son. 
Now, see, contrary to how many people think of grace, grace comes to us not as a substance. It is not like I say, John, here is a little bit of grace for you, and you hold this grace in your hand, and and Shar, here is some grace for you, and you have this substance of grace. It does not come to us in the form of a substance. Grace comes to us in the form of a person. Grace, God's grace to us is Jesus Christ. That's what his grace is. Sinclair Ferguson is really helpful in making this distinction. He says, God does not become gracious to me because Jesus Christ died for us. Some of us think that's the way it works. That God now all of a sudden pours out grace to us because of what his his son has done and accomplished for us. That's not the biblical understanding of grace. Rather, he says, Jesus died for me because God is gracious to me. Do you see the difference? Jesus doesn't work and make God gracious. Jesus fulfills his gracious purposes here for God. Okay? God had this a part of his plan. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that because he was gracious, he sent his son. It's really helpful. Grace, this is the good news of gospel grace. Jesus himself. Now, as we try to make this passage fit into the Christmas narrative, you might be wondering, how can you do that? How does this become a Christmas story or message? Well, let's examine the history of grace and we'll we'll get there. There's this phrase in here when he talks about Jesus, he says that he has descended from David. In verse 3, we learn something really important about the grace that we receive in Jesus. This grace, which is promised, which is promised in the Old Testament and revealed and affected through the life and death, resurrection of Jesus, has a history. If you would just take your Bibles real quick, I'm going to read a passage that um, you may be wondering, why are you reading this passage? But hopefully I'll be able to connect the dots for you in a way that does the scripture t- uh, justice. So Matthew chapter 1. And the part of the Christmas narrative I want to focus on this morning is specifically the genealogy of Jesus. You may be thinking, wow, the most fascinating part. Okay, I'm going to read these verses and I'm going to start to see heads fall. Okay, don't go to sleep on me. Okay, this is important stuff. This is God-breathed word and I will show you God's grace and the history and lineage of Jesus. That's my, my, my task, okay? So I want to look at verses 1 through 6 and 12 through 16. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Jump down to verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jehokaniah was the father of Shetail, Shetail, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abuid, Abuid, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azar, and Azar, the father of Zadok, 
and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, getting closer, the husband of Mary, who, who, uh, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, you might think to yourself, why would Matthew, as he's writing the story of Jesus, start with what is seemingly the most boring verses in all of the Bible. In fact, there's a lot of people who start reading the Bible here and they stop reading the Bible here. They start thinking to themselves, all the Bible is is just a list of names that has no relevance for my life. What I want to show you is you could not be further from the truth. There are a couple of reasons why Matthew starts here. First, in ancient times, the genealogy would serve as sort of a resume of sorts. It, it would have been common to tinker, kind of like it is today, with that resume so that you could present the person in the best light possible. Matthew doesn't tinker with Jesus' story, with the history of grace. He doesn't. Also, this genealogy was to show that Jesus came from the royal line of David. This was critical because according to the Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah was to come from the line of David. So ultimately, as he goes through this list of names, that's what Matthew is trying to show you, that, that Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. The third reason, finally, is to reveal the history of God's grace through the lineage of Jesus as we examine these name after name after name, we see God's grace even before Jesus' birth. As we examine it, there's ultimately two groups of people that begin to emerge out of these names. And what it shows us is who this grace is for. Who does God give grace to? You could take these names of people and really you could draw two categories with these names. Those who have sinned and those who have been sinned. Against. As you look in this list, you will see names of people who are murderers, who are crooks, who are caught up in scandal, in adultery, in even prostitution. Name after name, story after story, mess after mess. We also see not just is it for those who have sinned, but it's also for those who have been sinned against. See, there are names in this list. What's interesting about this list is that, that, that Matthew mentions five women. Now, normally you would leave those women out. Now, he only mentions five, okay? But he intentionally mentions five women's names. You got Rahab. He doesn't mention Bathsheba, but it's interesting what he says about Bathsheba. He refers to her, mentions Tamar, Ruth, Mary, just look at, you can look at each one of these stories and you would find something very interesting. Like Rahab, for example, she was a prostitute. And a lot of people talk about Rahab, they talk about her being a prostitute and how significant it is that in Jesus' family tree, he has prostitution. But it's also interesting when you think really about prostitution as a, a big thing, a cultural thing, what you begin to realize is it wasn't just like she was this scandalous woman who was out there selling her body because it brought some sort of satisfaction to her. Right? She was caught up in a broken system. She was victimized by man after man after man so she could live. It was a broken system she was caught against. To be sure, Rahab was sinned 
against. If you were to look at the story of Tamar, I mean, you want to talk about some Maury Povich type of stuff, go read Genesis 38, okay? little bedtime story. Don't do that. It's, it's, I mean, it's the word of God. It's fascinating. But this story is messed up. This woman who was married and, and then twice in the same family, the men die, and eventually she will trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her because he has tricked her and deceived her and neglected her and abused her, essentially. Promised something to her he did not fulfill. And so she resorts to, set, to, to basically tricking him, eventually having his child, all right? I mean, it is a messy, messy situation. God's grace is for those who have sinned, and those who have sinned against, not always different people, okay? Now, in light of recent news, the Bible is incredibly relevant. Over the past couple of months, maybe you see where I'm going with this, over the last couple of months, there has been story after story after story of sexual assault that, that women primarily have experienced at the hands of powerful and prominent men. Entertainment, business, political, journalism, on and on and on. It seems no sphere has been left untouched. What is even worse is that we know that the stories that are drawing all the headlines are really just a microcosm of a larger cultural phenomenon, right? Odds are there are even people in here who, as you, know, you could probably get on your phone and tweet out, me too. That's the hashtag that has come out as a result, right? That this is a larger cultural phenomenon that exists, now, I want to include this and refer to this in our message today because my guess is many of you in this room can relate to some of these women who have come forward, who know personally what it means to be assaulted, right? And as we think about our story, your story, we, we may be tempted to think about in terms of what we have done, sin, or what has been done to us against us. But in Jesus' genealogy, we learn a great deal about God and how he identifies with people and how he rewrites their story. When God sends his son and, and plants him firmly in history, he does so in a way that allows him to identify with sinners and with those who have been sinned against. God does not. The awesome thing about the God of the Bible, Matthew here in his gospel, he could easily have omitted these stories. That probably would have been the cultural accepted way to do things. But God does not overlook them. He does not sweep these stories under the rug. The kind of stories that Matthew is intentional in including here are the kind of stories that you and I would probably want to leave out. All right? These stories are the type that we normally would turn into deep family secrets. Yet here, they are preserved for generations. See, the truth is, we all have stories. If we were to examine our life and our past, we would all have secrets. That's the truth. Things that are tucked in our past that we would give a great deal to keep there. And maybe those things have been done by you. Maybe those things have been done to you. Adultery, drug abuse, financial scandal, relational strife, on and on we could go. Our nature 
wants to hide. If we even see what happens in the news as a result when these things come to light, is the tendency is to either hide or disassociate, probably primarily for economical means, to disassociate with the sin, with what has happened. Our nature wants to tuck them away. This is how the world works, and we're seeing it on the front page every single day. Wherever there is scandal, there's disassociation. In presenting the resume of Jesus, no one in the right mind will connect many of these people to Jesus. You would think it would ruin the reputation. But Matthew is trying to make an important point that in the kingdom of God, God doesn't disassociate from us. He identifies himself with us. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, Oh, Christ is the kind of person who's not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. One of the reasons why you can look at these verses and see the evidence of grace all over them, Rahab's life was a mess. Bathsheba, David's sin were heinous. Tamar was a mess. But out of that mess came the Messiah. Out of that sin came the Savior. Where our story could be dominated by what we have done or what's been done to us, the history of God's grace is the story of what's done for us. That's the amazing thing about God's grace. He redeems, he rewrites our stories. The last thing that we will see, we have the gospel of grace, the history of grace, is the life of grace. See, the truth is when this grace, when you receive this grace, the natural effect will be that your life should be transformed. That, that something will happen that will take your life and set it on a completely new trajectory. Now, there's two phrases in this that I just want to hone in on real quick. And those two phrases are, first is the obedience of faith. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. See, faith is not just the means by which we receive grace. This grace also aims to produce obedience of faith in us. True, genuine faith inevitably produces obedience, right? It's not what earns the grace. Grace is unearned, unmerited favor, but the result is an obedience to the faith. So now as recipients of God's grace, we walk in obedience. This grace makes a way and this grace keeps the way. We'll also see that the grace unites us Slave and free, Jew and Gentile. The effects of God's grace in our life bring a group of people that have no business being together. It brings them together. It unites us and it marks us as God's people. And it's a gift. It also calls us. Isn't it crazy to think, here's Paul, this man who was on a mission to stop Christianity, received God's grace, as he tells us here in Romans 1, and the result was that now he had a new calling in his life. He was an apostle. He received grace, and it completely turned the path of his life around. And now his life is, is built on this grace. He walks in obedience, and he has a completely new calling a completely new calling in life. It redirects him. It's interesting here that Paul refers to these, this church at Rome as saints. 
And it, it shows us that as somebody who walks in obedience, our pursuit in our life by his grace should be holiness. That's what we walk for and walk to. And the last thing we'll see is why did God orchestrate it this way? Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith, key phrase, for the sake of his name among the nations. The promised Messiah did not come to benefit one group of people or one nation alone. The gospel is good news for all. All who will respond in faith. When people from every nation profess Christ and demonstrate their faith by obedience, it brings forth, then his name will be honored among the nations. Ultimately, by God giving us this gift of grace, by us receiving it, by us growing in grace, the result should be that his name will be exalted among the nations. As us, as Parkview East, as this people here, as we grow in this understanding of grace, the desired effect for God is that his grace would be put on display at your job, in your school, wherever you are in our neighborhood, his grace would be displayed through our lives because of his son for his glory. It's an amazing concept. And what's even more amazing is that sinners like me and like you are now a part of this glorious story. It's not because of what you bring to the table. And what you bring to the table doesn't keep you away. It's only by his grace. So if you have not received his grace, so it's interesting in this story, like, like Paul makes a mention that he has received it. So the first question is, have you received the grace of God? Do you know it? If, if you do not, I would love the chance to meet with you and to walk you through how, just like that story, the woman could walk downstairs and open the door, blessing. How do you receive it? And the other challenge is how do you grow in it? I don't think, biblically, you grow in it alone. When we think about growing in the grace of God, my challenge to you would be are you connected with other believers? At East, we do that through community groups primarily. Are, you, are there other believers who have received this grace, who desire to grow in it, that you can call friend, brother, sister, and if you're not, my challenge for you is to find them right here in your midst, okay? We're here. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you just this morning as we consider and reflect on your great gift of grace. Lord, I pray that um, you would allow just your people to continue to walk in this grace. Father, that we would be a people of grace and that when people think of this church, of this group of of your saints, Lord, they would think primarily not of us, not of the great vocal abilities or, or the great school that's happening here, Lord, but they would think of you in your name, Lord. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.